All right, thank you, James. So uh, about once a year, I have this nightmare as a, as a youth pastor. Um, and it always happens around this time of the year where, um, where we uh, are about to have this time change. That was not supposed to happen. All right, hang on a second. I got to fix this because I, I can't preach on my knees this today. It's not going to work. So about once a year, I have this nightmare, um, and I'm sure other other pastors have the same thing. And it always seems to occur around the time of year we have this time change, uh, because the time change is like um, kind of like nightmare Sunday for pastors. We have this this feeling that like no one's going to show up, and of course today like half the crowd isn't even here. So um, there's a part of me that's like, should I even preach? I mean, let's just why should I waste this sermon on these people, you know, that are here today? Um, but about two weeks ago, I had this, uh, this dream that um, I was actually doing this sermon, and it was actually, we're going to show a video at the very end today, and I was about to show the video, and it was like one of those Sundays where everything just went wrong, like the person, like the, uh, Morgan at the back played the video at the wrong point, like at the beginning of the service, and I'm still standing at the back of the room, and um, everyone got mad and like fled the building, and like everyone walked out, and I was sitting there going, where'd everybody go, and then I wake up in a cold sweat, you know, and uh, and so it always seems to happen that way, like around this time of year for some reason, and I think it coincides with the the hour change deal. So um, uh, so it's kind of strange how that works out, but that's that's what youth pastors have to go through, it seems. So so turn to Judges chapter seven. Judges chapter seven. And here's what we're going to do today. We're going to actually just, um, normally I like to teach application while we're going through the passage, so I like to keep you tuned in and, uh, and apply it as we go. But today's passage will just be pretty much like teach the whole passage and let you see the story first and then apply it all at the end. So um, if you're getting to the point where you're like, okay, where is he going with this? You'll understand what we're doing this morning. So Judges chapter 7, and I've also tried to give you bite-sized chunks of, uh, of this book so that you're not overwhelmed each week. And so I'll occasionally have like a summary of a passage instead of giving you the entire passage. And so today is going to look like that as well. So Judges chapter 7, we talked about who last week? Remember the name of the guy we talked about last week? Anyone? No, Ehud was like week one. We're in week six now. Uh, who was it? Gideon. It was Gideon. Um, so I'm glad to know that we're, we're paying attention each week. That's great. Good news. So Gideon is about to go to battle against what people group? The Midianites. No, not the Gideonites. That wouldn't make any sense. Fighting his own people, that would make no sense at all. Uh, Gideon's about to go against the Midianites. And, uh, so let's look at Judges chapter 7, verse 2. Here's a... The first verse we're going to look at, verse 2 of chapter 7. It says, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. So, Midian has 135,000 troops in battle. Israel has about 22,000. So, it's like a 6 to 1 ratio from, from the Midianites to 
the Israelites. And so God says to Gideon, he says, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. So I don't want you all to boast. I'm going to take away some of your men so that you will, you will not boast in yourselves. That's the first thing I want you to see this morning. So God's concerned that they're too big and that they're going to take credit for the victory once they have the victory. So the next part I want you to look at, I want to summarize uh, up to uh, verse 6 here for you. So God tells Gideon he's going to let, um, so here's the way God kind of breaks this down. So God, God tells Gideon, he says, I want you to go to your men, all 22,000 people, and, and say to them, if you're scared, then go ahead and go home now, right? And about 12,000 12, men walk away at that point. So almost, a little more than half. So um, now he's down to 10,000 men. God still says there are too many, so he then tells Gideon to perform a test. You might be familiar with this test that he performs on the people at this point. There's 10,000 men left, so God says, um, I want you to take these men down to the river for a drink of water, and I'm going to ask you to, um, to count the men that, that put their hand in the water and, and raise the water to their mouth. I want you to count those men. Those are going to be your fighters. And so he doesn't tell the men this up front. He just says, um, I want you guys to take a drink of water out of the creek. And so all 10,000 men go down, and most of the men... Uh, put their face in the water and lap up the water kind of like a dog would. And, uh, but 300 men are the ones who put their hand in the water and raise the water to their mouth. Now, some people have made um, comments about this, like, well, the men who are putting the water in their hand, those men are uh, ready for battle and they're more prepared because they're looking out for the enemy as they get their water. And so most people I read this week said that's not really the reason why they were chosen. Um, this whole thing is really just random and arbitrary. Gideon could have picked like all the green-eyed men or the blue-eyed men or the left-handed men or something. It was just arbitrary just to get the numbers low so that Israel would not put their faith in themselves. So this test reduced the men from 10,000 down to 300 men left. I want to remind you, Midian has how many men? 135,000 men. So take the, 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 the city of Temple. We have about 70,000 people in this town. Did you guys know that? It's a pretty big town. So almost 100. And, um, if you take Temple and double the size of Temple, that's how many men that Midian had um, to fight Israel. If you take a normal Sunday in here, about 120, 130 students, and double that and then add a few, that's Israel. So 135,000 people versus 300 people, that's what's about to go down in this battle. Look down at verse uh, 9 of Judges 7. Verse 9. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. So he tells Gideon, he says, I want you to go into the camp. Now, I don't know if this means like disguise yourself, wear some glasses with a big nose and a mustache, and make sure no one knows who you are. Um, go into the camp against Midian, and, uh, or what is entailed here. But basically, Gideon goes into the camp of the Midianites, and uh, so I want to summarize for you verses t- uh, 10 to 12. 
Gideon goes to the Midianite camp, and he is intimidated by what he sees. It says, the Bible says that he, he sees so many men on the shore of this creek. They look like locusts just crawling everywhere. Just 100,000 100, of them, right? And, um, and, but while he's there, he overhears a talk between two soldiers that are Midianites. So here's what he hears between two men of Midian. It says in verse... Uh, 13. Look at verse 13. It says, when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, because that's how they talked back then, as they said, behold, before they said things. I dreamed a dream. It's not like a song, doesn't it? Um, yeah. That's what I thought of when I read that. Um, let's have this be a musical. You know, we'll, we'll make, have fun with it. So he says, behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, there's that word again, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, another word for friend, his comrade, his comrade answered, there is no, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. So let's just picture this. This is kind of a funny passage. So this, this dude dreams that basically a biscuit falls out of the sky, hits his tent, his tent collapse, and they conclude, listen, they conclude from this, like, that's it, we're dead meat. That's the end of us, Right? Everyone's scared of the barley cake. We know how dangerous the barley cakes can be. So if you can imagine old men like telling war stories, you know, like they had horses and chariots and swords and then they busted out the barley cakes. That's when things got bloody, right? When they start throwing barley cakes around. So, but you have to understand something here. Um, barley cakes back then were the food of the poor. So if you, if you reflect back on the Gospels, feeding of the 5,000, the little boy that had the five loaves and the two fish. These were barley cakes. This was the food of the poor. And so what this symbolizes isn't like a rice crispy treat falling out of the air. It's symbolizing someone who's poor, the, the poor nation, the Israelites who have nothing at their disposal, basically just toppling the kingdom of Midian, right? So it's a very symbolic thing. And so they know what's coming. So the Midianites, they know from this dream that there's a really good chance they're not going to make it through this battle, right? Now look at verse, uh, skip down to verse uh, 15 of chapter 7, verse 15. <clears throat> as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And so once again, Gideon is thinking to himself, okay, these dudes are scared of barley cakes. We definitely got this, right? And so um, it says, then he returns back to the camp of Israel and says, arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars and torches inside the jars. Now, this is not what you would typically think of when it comes to battle equipment. Trumpets, empty jars, maybe torches. Torches will do some damage. 
especially if you light a barley cake on fire and throw it at someone, right? Um, with torches inside the jars. Verse 17, and he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, who was here for impact the last few years? Did you guys ever, have you guys done Gideon? You guys did Gideon a few years ago, right? So, um, remember Mr. Ron's statement, how do you guys shout that in your little uh, presentation, right? That one little statement, for the Lord and for Gideon um, a few years ago, a few years back. So, here's the deal. They're going to fight with trumpets, torches, and jars. Midian, 300 Israelites, 135,000 Midianites. So they decide to go to battle at nighttime, which is smart, especially if you're outnumbered like they are. Look at verse 19. Verse 19, it says, So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Look at verse uh, 21, 23. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth, I can't say that in church, toward Zerara, as far as the border of, whatever that word is, by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all of Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Man, reading the Old Testament is hard, isn't it? Trying to make me curse up here. It's not going to happen. Um, so I want you to see what, what happens here. Uh, so imagine this scenario. You've only got 300 men that surround the entire camp of Midian. But they've got these big jars. Not sure how. I, I can't really picture how this would play out. But they've got these big jars with torches inside of them so that the, the, the fire can't be seen from the Midianite camp. They've also got, um, they've also got these trumpets. And there's 300 men. So... How many of you get really disoriented when you hear a sudden, loud noise? Raise your hand. Doesn't it just make you angry? Doesn't it? Like, my wife and I have this, this sort of uh, thing going back and forth. Like, whenever she, my wife is an awesome, awesome woman, but she, she can drop things sometimes. And it's, it's kind of funny because she's also good at catching those things. But occasionally, she'll drop something randomly and we'll make an extremely loud noise. And it's like, I just had this physical, like, reaction. It's just like, ah! Like, what, what just happened? You know, like, it, it freaks me out. And, uh, and so I'm a little on edge after that. So imagine they've got 300 men that surround their camp. And there's, they hear nothing, but it's, like, dead silent. It's nighttime. Everyone's sleeping in their tent, except for the men who are out at watch. And they hear broken jars, 300 of them. Then they see fire. Then they hear a trumpet, all right? So imagine that in your bed at night, you're asleep, 
somebody breaks some glass next to your head, or you see fire and you hear someone blowing a trumpet in your face, all right, this will cause some serious disorientation, right? You might actually kill someone in the middle of all that, right? That probably would happen. Um, so this happens 300-fold around the camp, and what's happening is the, this was smart by Gideon's. What he did was he waited until he waited until they were changing the watch. So some men are walking back to their tents with swords in their hands, and um, he waits for that to happen. These are Midianites who are walking back to their tents. And so the men who are in their tents, they hear all this commotion. They run out, think they're being attacked. And in the night, they see men with swords, and they begin to kill their own people as a result of it. So without Israel lifting one sword against Midian, Midian destroys themselves, and they go fleeing into the night, right? 300 men somehow pull off this amazing victory with 135,000 men. So, the question is, what in the world do we get out of this passage, right? There's a couple things I want to point out to you. The first one is this. Um, The greatest spiritual danger is for us to believe we can save ourselves. The greatest spiritual danger is for us to believe that we can save ourselves. Why did God want to reduce the number of the Israelites? It was for one reason, because he knew if they achieve victory based on their strength. They were going to take credit for themselves. They're going to boast in themselves. And as a result, not give God the glory. So he strips them of all their men down to 300 people so that they would know where their salvation came from. And I think the the parallel is also true for us. Spiritually speaking for us, There is something in us that we're either aware of or totally unaware of where we try to save ourselves spiritually. And so the greatest spiritual danger that you and I can encounter is this idea that we can actually save ourselves somehow. This is why in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, Paul says, the salvation is not of works, lest any man should what? Should boast, right? The salvation is completely and totally from God. You know, this, this makes it really clear to me that there should, never be, there should never be a Christian who is prideful. Right? There should never be a Christian who is prideful because if you're a Christian, if you call yourself a believer and you understand where your salvation comes from and you understand you can't do anything to earn your salvation then it should be pretty clear that none of us should be prideful as Christians. Now, I know it's not the case. We still struggle with pride in this life. But there should not be any Christian who logically looks at their life and says, yeah, I have reason to be prideful. It just doesn't make any sense if you know where your salvation comes from. But this also doesn't just apply to salvation. It also applies to other things as well. If you're someone who everyone sees you as physically attractive for the most part, then, then like, you know, there's many people put their faith and trust in that and, and, and think that, you know, there's someone because of this aspect of who they are. Well, who gave that to you? God did. If you have athletic ability, if you have 
if you're really intelligent, and whatever gifts you've been given by God, there should not be any Christian who says, you know, yeah, look at me because of what I have. Because that person should also know that everything they have has been given to them by God. God is the bestower of all gifts, especially salvation, but even those that go beyond salvation. So what God does sometimes, he takes those things away from us, those things we, we put our confidence, and he takes those things, strips those things away from us, just like he did the Israelites. Those things that you lean on for your strength, God takes those things away to make us aware of our weaknesses. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses uh, 7 to 9, Paul talks about this. And he says, uh, see, Paul was given a thorn in the flesh as a believer and he tells us why in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 9. Look at verse 7 on the screen. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the su- surpassing greatness of the revelations. So can you imagine being Paul? Like you've been persecuting Christians most of your adult life, and you're a Pharisee, you're a Jew, you hate Christians. All of a sudden, God just plucks him out and decides to change him, miraculously transform him, so now he becomes one of the most important Christians of the first century. He gets to write Bible. He gets to write part of the Bible. Paul does. So you can imagine there might be a little bit of pride coming into play with Paul. Like, you know, I, I'm Paul. I get to write part of the Bible. I, I get these, these awesome revelations and so Paul's very clear and understands why God gives him this affliction. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Now, people don't really know what this affliction was. Some think it was bad eyesight. Some think it was like some kind of a um, disease. But we don't really know what kind of affliction he had. But he had something. He called it a thorn in the flesh that just kept him humble, that kept him grounded, some kind of suffering that just kept him in check, kept pride at bay, kept him from becoming conceited because of God selecting him. Look at verse, uh, at verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I want you to catch what Paul just said there. He, he basically just said that when you are weak, that's when my power, God's power, can be made manifest in your life. When, when you are actually weak, that's when God's power comes through for you. And so just like the Midian, just like the, uh, the Israelites, when they're in a place of strength, large numbers, great military victory, God knows they would take credit for it themselves. God had to strip away their strength so that he could take glory and credit and they could only boast in one person and that's God and him alone. And the same is true for Paul. And the same goes for us. So why is Paul given this thorn in the flesh? The Bible is really clear in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He basically says, so Paul would know grace better. 
Think about this. In, in your times of suffering in your life, have you seen it as a chance to understand God's grace more clearly in your life? Or have you seen it as a chance to bash God or say, God, why have you done this to me? God, why have you allowed this affliction in my life? There's, 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 there's really two ways to approach those kinds of suffering. And it's, I'm going to grow closer to God through this, understand his grace better in my life through this, or I'm going to push God away and be my own God. There's really only two options there. The second thing I want you to understand from this passage is that God doesn't just work in spite of our weakness, but because of them. God doesn't just work in spite of our weaknesses, but because of our weaknesses. So God's saving power does not work when you and I think we're strong. I want to show you how this relates to every aspect of the Christian life. When you think of the Christian life from start to finish, so if someone becomes a Christian, point number one, you and I cannot be saved if we think we are worthy to be saved. You and I cannot be saved if we think we are worthy to be saved. So I've heard this from teenagers many times in talking about Christ. I've heard them say things like, well, I want to become a Christian, but I just don't think I'm a good person or I'm good enough yet for him to save me or something along those lines. And everything in me just wants to scream out, like, don't you understand that's not the gospel? Don't you understand that that's, you're in the exact right spot recognizing your weaknesses recognizing your sin, recognizing that you don't have what it takes to be saved, that you're not worthy to be saved. That's the exact place you need to be before you become a Christian. In order to become a Christian, you have to be at that place of weakness. You have to be at that place of saying, I'm not worthy to be saved. That's the starting point for becoming a Christian is when you say, I'm not worthy to be one. There's no other starting place for anyone to become a Christian than that. And this is true not just of salvation, but also true of repentance once you become a Christian. The second thing I want you to see is that we cannot repent unless we know our weaknesses. We cannot repent unless we know our weaknesses. So once you become a Christian, once you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, his work for you on the cross, you and I cannot continue to repent as a Christian and be grown, be sanctified in Christ-likeness unless you admit and understand and acknowledge your weakness. I think the mistake many of us make as we grow in our walk with Christ is we think to ourselves, I just got to try harder, I just got to do better, I got to fix that, I got to fix this. And no, repentance begins when you say, I can't in my own strength fix this problem. I can't in my own strength fix this temptation, fix this sin. You've got to come to God in a place of weakness and say, God, I cannot. But I know that you can. Because his strength is made manifest in you as you make yourself weak before him. Tim Keller, I told you I'd quote him quite a bit for this series. He says, someone who thinks there is little in them to forgive will have little love for their forgiver. 
someone who thinks there's just not much, you know, a lot of us that, are, that grew up in the church, we think this way oftentimes. We think that, yeah, I know I'm a sinner, but we kind of talk about our sin in very generic terms. Like, we don't really talk about, we don't really see ourselves as like, well, I'm not that kind of sinner. I know I'm a sinner, but I'm not like that guy or that girl. And we, we see ourselves as in a different category than someone else that we see as less than when it comes to sin. And so if someone sees in themselves, there just wasn't much in me to forgive. I know I got junk. I know I have stuff I have to work on. But, I mean, that girl over there, that guy over there, they've got a lot more than I've got. I mean, most of that blood on the cross Jesus spilled was for them. I got a couple drops maybe. But most of it was really for them because they're worse than me. And, you know, I think if someone comes to you, you guys will get this later on, as you guys uh, get monthly bills like we have as adults. Um, but if someone comes to you and says, I paid one of your monthly bills, right? Well, I've got like a lot of monthly bills. And if they said they paid my, you know, $45 DSL internet bill, then I'd be like, okay, that's cool. But if they say I paid your, you know, $1,100 house payment, which one am I going to be more happy about, right? It's an easy decision, right? The, the, the larger bill is going to be a lot more joy-inducing for me if I hear they paid that bill versus the one that's a smaller bill. And so what I want you to get from this is if you understand how great your debt is, you are that much more grateful when someone forgives or pays your debt. I think this is why so many of us church people grew up in the church. This, is, this explains our apathy, I think. This explains it because we don't really fully see our debt as that big. We don't really see it that way. We see it as just, yeah, it's minor compared to that person or that person. And it's only when you see what how big your debt is that you understand how amazing his grace is for us. And then lastly, we cannot grow unless God strips us of our strength. Go to point number three. We cannot grow unless God strips us of our strength. So again, what are you proud about? What are the things that you look at your life and go, I'm proud about this accomplishment, that accomplishment, grades, intellect, humor, looks, personality, athletic ability, college scholarships? Like what, if you were to line up your life, what are the things that, that bring great pride to you in your life? If God strips those things away from your life, all those things, all of your strengths, What's left? I think God does this sometimes. He strips us down because he wants to grow us deep into him. And for Gideon and for Israel, if God left them strong, they would have boasted in themselves. And God wants them boasting in one thing, and it's him and his strength. And the last point I want you to see this morning is just very simple but powerful, and it's this. The things that stand against us are not as strong as they appear. So Gideon looks out at this crowd of Midianites, 135,000 men. He knows if it's 
sword for sword, man for man, they're completely just gone. They're toast. There's no way they can beat these guys. But then he hears this dream, and he understands these men are are terrified because we have a God that we know can beat them. And once he sees how terrified they are, he realizes, hey, we've got this. God's going to give us this victory. And so he realizes that these men are not as strong as they really appear because they've got God on their side as they fight the Midianites. The Midianites had 135,000 men. Gideon had 300. They were one of the most feared armies in the world, the Midianites were. The Israelites had nothing except for God and some trumpets and some torches and some jars. That's it. And so he sees that they're terrified again. The Midianites are terrified when they look at the, the God of Israel. And so I want to ask you this morning, as you think about what intimidates you as a Christian or what sins you struggle with, what things you look at in your life and think, there is no way I can beat that. There's no way that God can give me power over that. There's no way God can give me power over that temptation or that sin or that kind of enemy. There are many things in our lives, guys, that we look at and think that there is no way we can beat that. There's no way. What I love about the book of Judges is that when I first looked at this book, I thought, how am I going to make this relevant to high school students? Because all I see is like death and murder, killing, war, those kind of things in this book. And yet every passage we've touched on, pornography, dating, um, we, we've, we've run the gamut in this book already, guys. And what's amazing to me is how um, applicable God's word is, no matter what passage you're looking at. And so as a Christian, as you think about this, as a Christian, what are the things that intimidates you? What are the things that you look at and say, there's no way I can beat that sin. There's no way I can beat that temptation. When I look at that, I see like, An army like the Midianites, there's no way I can handle that. There's no way I can beat that. There's no way I can defeat that. And what I think God wants you to know this morning is that with his power in your life, you can. With his power in your life, there is nothing that stands between you and him. With his power in your life, there is no sin. There is no temptation that can overpower you if you're a Christian. Because God is more powerful than that. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to um, show you this video and I want to set this thing up first. There's a girl I want you to meet named Jackie Hill. I have a picture of her here on the screen. And uh, you don't know her story. I'll tell you her story quickly. She was born uh, into a very troubled home. And she was sexually assaulted as a child. And uh, it sort of set her life on a course Um, just where she hated men, a man abused her, and she, rightfully so, was very fearful of men, and so she went down the pathway of homosexuality since she can remember. But at some point in her life, God got a hold of her, and God changed her. He transformed her. And so I want you to see a video of just her kind of sharing a bit of her story. Um, Just to set this up, uh, I had to take this video. It's like the second half of a video that I got off the Internet. And the first half is just too long to show, but the first half is her doing like a, she does a spoken word poetry and does a pre- pretty powerful job with it as well. And so um, 
what you're going to see in this video is her commenting on her spoken word uh, poetry reading that she had at this uh, Christian club one night. So this is her commentary about that, but she tells her story in the midst of that. So let's go ahead and play the video. This poem means a lot to me simply because it's my story and to me it gives so much glory to God by showing the power of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the delivering power of God all in one. And it also it means a lot to me because I know it will encourage those that are in the homosexual lifestyle to know that it is possible to have power over sin. It is possible to change. It also means a lot to me because I know it will encourage those that have family members or friends that are in the lifestyle, you know, to know that since she changed it is possible for my loved one to change as well and make push their prayers even harder because they see evidence that there can be change i really hope people walk away with encouragement no matter how deep you get into your sin no matter how deep you get into depression no matter how much you struggle with thoughts from your past from molestation whatever may be hindering you that god has the power to pull you out of it all and give you the power and the strength and the courage to fight every temptation every battle and to overcome everything that you thought had you. I've actually had people, you know, come up to me and say that I chose to, you know, deny the natural feelings of homosexuality that I may have for fear of man or to be accepted or to be normal. But really that's not the case. If it was up to me and my flesh, I would have died a homosexual until God showed me that he died for homosexuals is what I was doing was hurting him. That's when I realized that how much I needed him, how I couldn't trust myself, how everything that I was seeking was a, a replacement for him, but it would never fulfill me like he did. And when he showed me that, I grabbed onto him like, you know, it couldn't believe him. It had nothing to do with man. It had nothing to do with acceptance. It had all everything to do with Jesus Christ. And really, you know, if I suppressed it, I know that I really wouldn't be pushing towards deliverance of people so much because I have to answer to God first and foremost. So if I was lying about my deliverance or I was lying about what I'm doing, I would have to answer to God on judgment day for that. Secondly, a lot of people may say that they were born that way and I addressed that in the poem that, you know, you may have felt these feelings from a young age, but the fact of the matter is that God did not make you gay because he wouldn't make you something and say, go to hell for it. The, the issue is that we were born in sin, we were shaped in iniquity, so we were open to do all types of sin. You know, we were. I could have been a murderer, I could have been a molester, I could have been all these types of things, but what I chose was to be a homosexual. I chose that. I acted on the feelings I had instead of running to the cross and saying, God, these are not of you. Please help me. I said the word beautiful as much as I did simply because from my own experience and also from studs that have been delivered out of the homosexual lifestyle and studs that I know that are still in the homosexual lifestyle, many of them don't really love themselves as who they are. So they become something that they're not to cover up the hurt that they have on the inside. And for me personally, I didn't think I was beautiful as a girl. I didn't think I was pretty as a girl. I didn't think all these things. So me putting on the clothes, you know, besides the attention, besides all that, I believe that it covered up the hurt little girl that was on the inside of me. And it's not about being beautiful in a conceited or arrogant sense. It's about knowing that God made you beautiful, that God sculpted you and, and made sure that everything 
everything about you the way you looked was perfect in his eyes and that was really what I was trying to come across is that you're beautiful in the sight of God man may not say you're beautiful but that doesn't matter it's what God believes I care about reaching homosexuals because God cares I care because I know how it is to be judged I know how it is to be shunned I know that the body of Christ tends to shun homosexuals because they don't know how to effectively minister to them so I'm coming at them from a point of view where I totally get what they're going through I totally understand the feelings the emotions the hurt the pain but I also understand God's power I also understand God's word and I also understand his commands and I'm trying to tell them you know that God can change you and that's why I care so much to those that are in the lifestyle and are struggling to get out but they feel it's too hard, I totally understand because homosexual feelings and desires can feel so strong and they can feel so natural that you begin to trust the desires more than you trust God. And so God is God. He created the seas. He created us. He created every single thing. And so you're trusting the one that made you. You know, if he can make your heart, he can change your heart. And it's all in you trusting him and believing his word and believing the things that he said in his scriptures. Believing, you know, that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. When you really believe that and meditate on it, he will begin to change you as you trust him. It'd be very easy for someone like her... This poem means a lot to me simply because it's my story, and to me it gives so much glory to God by showing the power Pause. of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the delivering power. There we go. The computer likes to play things twice. You guys need to hear it a second time, right? So um, when you heard her speak, the words I kept hearing over and over again was God's power, God's power, God's power. And it'd be very easy for someone like her who feels like she's born that way, right? who feels like this is just always the way it's going to be, it'd be easy for someone like her to look at her life and say, you know what, that enemy, that sin, that temptation can't be defeated. That'd be easy for her to say that. In fact, many say that today. But she stood up and said, no, I believe God's more powerful than that. I believe God can transform me. God can change me. And it may not, that may not be your struggle. It might be. I don't know. It may not be your struggle. But... Um, Whatever you struggle with, you could have just filled in the blank there with whatever you struggle with, whatever it is. What sins and temptations do you feel trapped in? What things do you look at and say, that's too powerful for me. I can't, I can't defeat that. God, I, can't, I can't handle that. What has power over you? I want to let you know this morning, it's not as strong as it appears. Now, it's strong. I'm not saying it's not strong, but it's not as strong as it appears. And I will say this, that it, it is stronger than you are. It is stronger than you are. But it's not stronger than God is. I don't want to downplay this and say, you know, this, this isn't a big deal or <clears throat> Satan's not powerful or sin's not powerful. I'm not, I'm not saying you should play with fire this morning, that, that these things are not a big deal. I'm saying they're very powerful. They are more powerful than you are. But I want you to know this morning, that God's more powerful than Satan. God's more powerful than your sin. God's more powerful than anything you and I struggle with in our lives. And so when you, when you and I acknowledge that and become weak, that's when his power can work in and through us.
So I want you guys to go ahead and close out uh, with some discussion questions at your tables. We're going to stay in here today because of the um, missing a lot of leaders today. So go ahead and have your discussion questions at your tables. Go ahead and discuss.